1: To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We're very excited today to have a returning guest who was on the podcast with us for her last novel, which was her debut. So she has earned her MFA in creative writing from Emerson College, and has had her work published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and more. Her debut novel, Dava Shastri's Last Day, was a Good Morning America book club pick and is currently in development as a television series for HBO Max. She lives with her husband in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Kirthana Ramasetti.
2: Kirthana, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be back.
1: And I
3: am now, this is Cece speaking, hijacking this episode. Everyone must listen to me now. Bianca has no idea I'm doing this, by the way. We just introduced Kirthana, but I'm going to put her on the spot. Kirthana, tell our lovely listeners how we know each other,
2: specifically you and me. Cece is one of the agents I queried for my debut novel, and I was very offered when she made me an offer of representation. Was I the first to offer? I believe you were the second or the third. I tell the story wrong because I say I was the first.
3: Okay. Why am I pointing this out? Because we have a very, very special community in our podcast. It's a community where occasionally one of us rejects the other. Carly and I have been queried by authors who we've offered representation to and signed. And sometimes people query us and we unfortunately pass on that project. And yet we're still a part of this amazing community because that is one of the things that makes publishing so unique. We're all in this together. We're all supporters of each other. We're all still super excited about seeing everyone succeed, even though we don't necessarily work together. And so for everyone who's listening, who's facing rejection at any moment, A, know that it happens at all levels. B, know that it doesn't change, not even for a second, how much people care about your project and how much we want you to succeed. And three, if I ever offer you representation, I will tell the story wrong of how
1: the representation offer happened.
3: And you can come on the podcast and correct me.
1: I love that. I love that, Cece. And on behalf of all the writers out there, can I just say because we deal with so much damn rejection every day from agents. So it's awesome sometimes when the tables are turned and we see authors rejecting agents. So Kathana, there's a whole bunch of podcast listeners out there who are like, you go girl. Okay. So before we discuss Advika and the Hollywood Wives, which is Kathana's sophomore novel, which we're going to get into, we're going to do some deep dives. We are going to dive right in today with our first query letter
0: and Carly's going to kick us off. I also want to say on the thread that CC just led us on is that somewhere in the episode today, I won't say where, somewhere in the episode today, there will be a book mentioned that I offered rep to and didn't get as well that the author decided to sign with somebody else. So I won't say where, who, where, you know, as I said in the podcast, but listen up everybody and you will hear a book that I offered rep too. And it's in the comps of, of something that you will hear today. Okay, here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly and Cece, I only just discovered your podcast, the shit no one tells you. And I'm so glad I did not just for the fun and informative podcast itself, but for all the classes, workshops and contests. Thank you so much for your thoughtful help with all of us newbies trying to figure out this world of publishing. And as you say, persistence, it is what pushed me to send the query letter below. The Healing Houses, my upmarket debut, complete at 100,000 words, told in two perspectives, and two time periods explores obsession, the dangerous power of charisma, and healing with artistic expression. I trust this will appeal to fans of my dark Vanessa and the girls. 34-year-old Elaine Montague is an artist. She paints houses, houses with roots reaching into rocky earth, windowless houses tumbling through white water. Her art is her life and coping mechanism. Five years in a cult. Then 10 years in hiding, she believes Michelle, the charismatic leader of the Um um-brotherhood and figure of her past obsession, has been searching for her, and perhaps still is. Now living in Colorado, her fifth state in 10 years, Elaine befriends Mary, a purported therapist, and finally feels safe enough to reveal some of the stories she's clutched tightly to for years. Fast forward a year, and Elaine's ex-boyfriend from the cult, James, is desperate to retrieve his wife and young daughter from the brotherhood. Elaine's fear of being drawn back into the world and the toxic relationship she thought she'd finally let go of becomes real when she indeed becomes face-to-face with Michelle. Gathering her resources is imperative. She believes Mary was helping her, but with Mary suddenly under Michelle's spell, and the fact that her name is not even in the county records, Elaine wonders who she's dealing with. To keep her carefully built foundation from cracking, her focus on her dream solo art show at the prestigious Denver Gallery, she must dredge up the gems she learned from Michelle himself, gems that come with crippling memories. Some days the only safe place to stand is at her easel. While my business has been as a successful artist, I am also a longtime writer whose fiction and poetry have been published in such journals as Earth Daughters, Ravens, Perch, and The Harbinger. I was rewarded an honourable mention at the Soulless Awards Traveler's Tales 2020-2021 for my short story, The Bathroom. I participated, 2020, in the Community of Writers, formerly Squaw Valley Writers Conference. Thank you for your time and consideration. Please see below the first five pages of The Healing Houses. Best, Liz Collins.
1: Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so can you give us an indication of word count there and then
0: your take on that? So there was a bit of a preamble, but altogether, 456 words. Okay, so our title is a different font size. So just a reminder, your title should just be all caps, but the same font size. So 12 point, Times New Roman, all of that good stuff. Okay, and so in terms of the... The hook here. So we have dangerous power of charisma, healing with artistic expression. And then I'd add kind of like when X happens to Y at the kind of end of that little preamble about the obsession and the power of charisma, artistic expression, just kind of like build out that hook a little bit because it's still a little bit vague. Try to explain like when X happens to Y in that little part there. Next. I actually was a little bit confused about the painting logistics just from a you know, just straightforward point of view. Right. So we know that she's an artist, but then it says she paints houses. I thought it meant literally like, yes, she's an artist, but she paints the exterior of houses. And then I was like, Oh, roots reaching into rocky earth. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> what kind of houses are, and then I was like, are we in a fantasy world? Like, as I said, looking back, I'm like, it is straightforward, with the fact that I was so confused in the moment, maybe find a way to just explain like artistically that she paints houses on canvas and figure out a way to kind of explain that because I thought we're talking about the exteriors of houses and again we don't need to we don't need to stumble over anything for a reason like that okay so now I'm thinking we have fast forward a year Elaine's boyfriend etc etc so why did the book start a year ago if it seems like we're just fast forwarding to where the plot begins I'm a little bit confused about that also confused about why she's helping her ex-boyfriend. So, like like we have our plot points, but we're not really connected in terms of the why behind all of these, which just makes us think about why is this protagonist making the choices that they're making, right? So we kind of have to understand the stakes and the reasonings. I would try to find a way to weave these elements in so we understand with a bit more meaning what is happening, as opposed to just kind of like naming off plot points, because to me they weren't very connected. And also, like, why can't she just run away? Like, is she actually afraid for her life? Like Like, how do we actually spell out what's at stake here? The fact that she can't show her art collection, I mean, that is very serious for an artist. But is this life and death that we're kind of up against here with this cult, how dangerous is Michelle? Because in this last paragraph, we have, you know, carefully built foundation from cracking like these are vague things and I understand that you're probably trying to tie back into the like she paints houses and it's like foundation and houses like I kind of get what we're trying to do on a literary sense here but um we get this whole like foundation cracking thing kind of a lot and you know either in these terms or similar terms at query letters. so ending with the safest place is her easel is a very safe choice right this is a very muted neutralized ending, where we kind of have to leave on a cliffhanger here. So those are kind of the main things that I would work on in this query letter. But overall, it's very interesting in terms of the plot points, but we're just, I know it's not finding them super connected.
1: Thank you, Carly. Okay, can you
0: give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So we start with chapter one in Elaine's point of view. She has recently moved to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. We find out that she was leaving Nebraska and headed to Colorado, living in the middle of the mountains where she doesn't think anyone will be. Like she just really has the basics, like toothbrush, her painting supplies, and, and that's it. She goes for a walk, she sees another woman, which she's really surprised about. The woman seems to be like also surprised by her and kind of like says, I just put on, you know, just put on coffee, like come in. And then our character kind of like runs away a bit overwhelmed. There was like like a smell that was reminding her of something. And then we go to our chapter two, where we are going into her memories of being on the farm, which is the the cult that is mentioned in the query letter. And we meet James, who is the boyfriend character as well. And that's kind of where we end. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on them? All right, so... I found the writing style pretty fragmented, right? Like that choppy style of writing where a lot of really kind of short sentences. And there was also, I found a grammatical error in the first line, which I'm always like, okay, that's like something to stumble upon. Not the end of the world, of course. But the combination of that plus the fragmented sentences, to me, fragmented sentences always feel young. They feel really young. It's like somebody who's like, you know, just. They're just, their brain is just popping in all these different directions. I always like the balance of some fragments or, you know, some shorter sentences together. And then all of a sudden, then we're building into these like longer, more lyrical sentences as well. So it was like it was pretty choppy, but there were there were some things I really liked. There was a line I liked that said, I stared the boxes down, hoping to feel with my mind's eye which one holds the needle and thread. You know, there were some really kind of like lyrical bits in there, but for me the balance was a bit off in terms of the short choppy fragments and then kind of like building into these more lyrical elements. I really liked the description of setting like Colorado felt really real to me in terms of what do the trees look like and the smells and the oxygen being thin in terms of the air quality and All of that, I I really enjoyed that piece. I'll give you an example of kind of what I'm talking about with this kind of choppy wording here. So for me, something that that would just, again, was a bit fragmented and choppy was, I just hadn't counted on the woman in yellow. Who would be living at 100,000 feet up a long dirt road other than me? There she was, so bright, so yellow, so briefly seen. I saw her before she saw me. I don't know. For me, it was just like a lot of kind of repetition of these types of things. So I would again, as I said, like that balanced a little bit more. One thing about seeing the neighbor and then running away, I was kind of I was surprised that she wasn't more concerned about what the neighbor thought of her, right? Because she's just in her own head, being like, saw the neighbor, takes off. Wouldn't you be thinking, I don't know, what, what does the neighbor think of me? Now we have to have this rapport or she's gonna see me again and, and she kind of wants to see her again. So I in terms of again, she felt really young to me because she felt very in her own head, not really aware of what other people are thinking. But I didn't get the intention that she was supposed to be young because it says, I learned, we learn in the pages, she was 17 when she visited the farm. And then she was at the farm for a while. And then it's like 10 years later than that, right? So I'm like, she's, I don't know. I just was feeling a little bit disjointed about how I was supposed to feel about this character she's meant to be kind of stunted and in growth or adolescence but I wasn't quite sure about that the other thing is we don't have any time stamps other than that one mention of when she joined in 1972 when she first visited the farm like are we supposed to be in the 90s like I don't know I just again wasn't really sure where we were in time and place other than Colorado and I really liked the descriptions of Colorado and I felt very connected to that element of this
1: thank you Collie. yeah as you were discussing this I was wondering if it wasn't perhaps the author's intention to show a kind of emotional or intellectual being stunted by being a part of this cult, etc. If if that's kind of what they're going for, do you have advice
0: for them on how to make that work perhaps a bit better? You know, that's really interesting because... One of the things that I found interesting about this project is that it's pitched as upmarket. There are elements of this that are actually incredibly literary. And so I was thinking if this is meant to be literary fiction, I would actually lean much more into that and kind of, plant those seeds because we do go between like being in the present learning about the past pretty quickly and the way that we jump between past and present and present and past is very literary it's kind of that like start of a new paragraph jumping into the moment you know that type of style of past and present so if it is intentional which we can always always believe that it is and and that is the author's intention even if it doesn't show up for us I would potentially be positioning this book as more literary and kind of leaning into that a little bit more because in terms of like from a commercial or more upmarket point of view, it was just too subtle for me. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you.
1: Due to popular demand, I'll be running another beta reader matchup in July, with the deadline to register being the 31st of July and the actual matches happening on the 1st of August. If you're looking for once-off beta readers for your work in progress, or perhaps for other writers who might become writing group partners down the line, then this is the matchup for you. I try to the very best of my ability to match you up with writers in the same time zone and who are working in the same genre as you, and I'm always so blown away by the incredible feedback after each match-up session. I'm also pairing this one with a fundraising initiative for an awesome literary cause, so you'll be improving your own work, the work of other writers, and helping South African author Keleto Mapai finish her MFA at the University of Cape Town at the same time. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the beta reader page to get more info and to register. All right, now we're going back to our guest author, who is Kirtana Ramazetti. As I said before, she's been on the podcast before with Darva Shastri's Last Day, and we're now discussing her second novel, Advika and the Hollywood Wives. So I have some um, questions for you, Kirtana. Before we get to them, I'm just going to read the blurb for our listeners so that they sort of get an overview, well, the jacket copy, so they get an overview of what the story is about. At age 26, Advika Srinivasan considers herself a failed screenwriter. To pay the bills and keep her mind off of the recent death of her twin sister, she's taken to bartending A-list events, including the 2015 Governor's Ball, the official after-party of the Oscars. There, in a cinematic dream come true, she meets the legendary Julian Zelding, a film producer as handsome as Paul Newman and ten times as powerful, fresh off his fifth best picture win. Despite their 41-year age difference, Advika falls helplessly under his spell and their evening flirtation ignites into a whirlwind courtship and elopement. Advika is enthralled by Julian's charm and luxurious lifestyle, but while Julian loves to talk about his famous friends and achievements, he smoothly changes the subject whenever his previous relationships come up. Then, less than a month into their marriage, Julian's first wife, the famous actress Evie Lockhart, dies and makes a shocking stipulation in her will. A single film reel and a million dollars will be bequeathed to Julian's latest child bride on one condition – at vika must divorce him first. Shaken out of her love fog and still simmering grief over the loss of her sister and uneasy an about Julian's inexplicable urge to start a family, Advika decides to investigate him through the eyes and experiences of his exes. From reading his first wife's biography to listening to his second wife's confessional albums and to watching his third wife's Real Housewives-esque reality show, Advika starts to understand how little she knows about her husband. Realizing she rushed into to the marriage for all the wrong reasons Advika concocts a plan to extricate herself from Julian once and for all dun 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 so for our listeners very hooky there right there's like a lot to hook you in now Kathana, I know from the last time we spoke that you love movies you love stars you love celebrities etc etc so can you tell us a bit about your inspiration for this novel
2: Sure. So to be honest, it came from a binge watch of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which I'm kind of, I find it funny to say that, but it also just goes to show you never know where inspiration is going to come from. It could come from anywhere. And I am a very much a pop culture fan and a Bravo fan. And I found myself actually not long after turning in the draft of my first novel to my editor, I just needed to decompress a little bit. And so I find myself binge-watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And if you're not familiar with the show, there is a housewife on the show who is married to a very famous music producer. And so during these episodes I was watching, you're actually watching the disintegration of their marriage. And they end up divorcing at the end of that season. And I was watching this thinking, well, I know for the fact this husband goes on to remarry a much younger woman who's about 30 to 40 years younger than him. And I just thought, what would it be like to be his wife, and you can actually go back and watch him and see what he was like with his previous spouse. And then the other idea I had was I knew for a fact that this husband actually had famous ex-wives as well. So I also thought, what would be like to be the fourth wife of a very powerful man? And not only are you like 40 years younger than him, all his wives before you were famous too. And the colonel going for this novel.
1: Amazing. I love that. We say to our listeners, bum in chair, bum in chair. But That is not where inspiration strikes, and that's not where ideas come from. We as writers need to interact with the world in order to be inspired by the world, which means that watching, you know, television or going on walks or binge watching whatever is actually a great way to get really good ideas and then put your bum in the chair to write about them. Now, Kathana, the last time we spoke about your debut novel, you said you had to become like a rehabilitated pantser to becoming a plotter in order to get published. So I'm assuming that means that for this book, Advika and the Hollywood Wives, you plotted it a lot more, is that right? And how did that experience change your
2: writing? Yeah, so I always, after writing Daba, that was my first time plotting a novel and writing an entire outline in advance before writing the draft. But this, my new novel, Advika, it was the first time I was writing on deadline, which is a completely different experience. And I think I was just kind of writing it in a panic, mostly because I just never wrote a, wrote a whole first draft in maybe about eight to nine months before. So I had to figure out a method that worked for me. I realized I liked having an outline and having like a roadmap telling me what I will write next. But I honestly didn't feel like I had enough time to write an entire outline beforehand. So I kind of what I ended up doing was writing a couple of chapters at a time in an outline then writing the draft and then going back to the outline, writing a few more chapters, and then going back to the draft. It's kind of like laying railroad tracks before you cross them ended up being a method that really worked for me and i found that i could be adaptable to the moment because i think writing on deadline is so different than writing a debut where you have all the time in the world no one has any expectation of reading it maybe nobody even exists versus writing into a deadline knowing you're trying to make sure you turn your book in on time because you want your book to also come out at a certain time everything is so contingent once you're on contract to making sure that book comes out at a time that you've published, we can promote it in the best way possible.
1: I love that that was your process because, you know, for our listeners out there, one person's process is not necessarily going to work for you. Some of you get chest pain at the thought of pantsing. Some of you get chest pain at the thought of plotting. Um, And this is like a combination of the two. So for our listeners, always find what works for you. And, you know, even if it's your own method, maybe we'll have you on the podcast in the future and we will call it the whatever your name is method, because that's, you know, a great way of of finding what works for you. Something I also want to chat to Kathana about is on the podcast, Kathana, we I don't want to necessarily call them rules. We like to give writers guidelines because we see emerging writers make the same mistakes over and over again. Carly and Cece see it in the submissions they get. I see it as a creative writing instructor and as someone who does manuscript evaluations. And so we say, try and stay away from X and Y because it's difficult to pull off and rather do this instead. And so I love it when I come across an author who has broken the rules, so-called rules, and who really makes it work. Now, in Dava Shastri, you gave her something that she wanted straight out the gate. We knew what her want was. There were stakes tied to it. And so, you know, we, we understood how to get on board with her and sort of what the impetus, the emotional impetus of everything was what we say on the podcast is God against a, there I was minding my own business kind of opening where the character doesn't desperately want something. We don't know what the stakes are. They are just kind of they're minding their own business and something happens to them. And that, yet this is what you did in this book and you did it so incredibly well. The only thing we see in the opening scene, Advika's at the governor's ball, she's standing behind the bar, she's having to deal with a bunch of A-list celebrities, most of which are awful, let me just say. The only thing we really see her wanting is to get out of these cheap shoes she's wearing because they're causing her blisters and yet the scene was so compelling even though I didn't know what she wanted and even though I didn't know what the stakes were. So if our listeners are going to start with that kind of beginning, what is your advice to them? How did you make this so damn compelling without giving her something
2: she desperately wanted straight away? That is such an excellent question and to be honest I didn't really think of myself as a rule breaker until right now but I do think what I try to do with that opening scene that opening chapter is Adrika does want something very badly. She's mourning the loss of her twin sister and she feels very disconnected from the world both from her family and her friends and the fact that she's just not where she wants to be professionally. On top of that, she is an aspiring screenwriter. So there's something to be said to be the fact that you are at the most elite Hollywood event of the year and you're surrounded by people you'd long to be peers with, but you're there serving them drinks. So, what I tried to do is even before Akabika meets Julian, I wanted to set up the idea that she's in a very interesting place in her life. She's at a very low place in terms of feeling lonely, feeling that she hasn't achieved the dream that she wants. At the same time, she's at this event, which is kind of like the fairy tale of Hollywood. This is where you see dreams do come true. She's actually seeing people walking around, smiling, having their Oscars in hand. It kind of does awaken this dream she does have. So it's almost like... She wants something very badly, but in mourning the death of her twin sister, she doesn't know how badly she wants it until she's in this very amazing setting. And so she's already feeling her dreams in a lot of way, like, this is what I want to be. It's actually a passage in the first chapter where she's like, I used to daydream about just giving an acceptance speech at the Oscars, but now I have a new aching dream and to be here in this room, not serving drinks, but being peers and being with the Hollywood elite. So she's already in that mindset of where she's dreaming. So when Julian comes and starts talking to her and they have a conversation, then she realizes, oh wait, maybe this is something I can actually do. Maybe the dream isn't so far away from me anymore. So. I kind of want to make sure to set Avika up as a person who didn't know she wanted something so badly until it was right there in front of her. And wanting to take the reader on that journey as well, where she kind of realizes that in real time. Amazing. And for our listeners, so if you're going to do it, do it deliberately, do it
1: like Kithana has with something very specific in mind in terms of this character's arc in terms of their journey, as opposed to just kind of stumbling into that kind of beginning without really thinking it through, which is something that we see a lot of in terms of the submissions. One more rule that Kithana broke is we say, try and keep your chapters short. It's ridiculous that the biggest compliment I get about my own books at 3am in the morning is people are like, Bianca, thank you so much for writing short chapters. And I'm like, oh great. Well, I'm glad that that is my big, you know, positive as a writer is my short chapters. But your first chapter was 30 pages long. And we also generally say change chapters if there's a setting change or if the characters move from one place to the next or if there's a time jump. Now, you clearly show the scene breaks, but you kept that all together in one really long chapter. And I know that you would have done that like on purpose. So can you take
2: us through your reasoning there? I think one of the things I realized as soon as I came up with the premise of this novel is that I had to start at Julian and other because meet Q, the, the night that they meet at the Governor's Ball and I feel like what happens is I want to kind of put the reader in the, uh, the shoes of Adrika. She just thinks this is just another gig. She's working at another event. Her feet are hurting. She's dealing with weird customers. And suddenly this very powerful producer, fresh off his fifth best picture Oscar win, is talking to her and having a really deep conversation with her. And she can't believe this is happening. And then as the night goes on, he invites her to go out to the rooftop and have another deeper conversation. And then he invites her to go out to a diner and get something to eat. And it's just like, she can't believe this night is happening. It's almost like a fever dream. And she doesn't know what's going to happen next. So I kind of just wanted to not break up that whole long night they have together in chapters, but kind of just kind of make it like this thing that Afrika is under this guy's spell and she can't believe this is all happening to her. And so it was really important to me to the first chapter conclude with when they kind of have that moment where they kiss and the fairy tale becomes real. But um, in terms of chapter lengths in general, I feel like it's always very instinctual to me. I don't really think that how long or short a chapter will be. But one of the things I realized in writing this book, I was like, at a certain point, I realized I was like, oh, wait, I'm kind of writing a thriller. And I didn't even realize it because as Athmika goes on this search to find out who her new husband really is through the eyes and experiences of his ex-wives, she's just uncovering more and more information about him. So sometimes as she gets closer and closer to figuring out who he really is, the chapters get shorter and more uh, more clippy. And I think that just mirrors the fact that is getting closer and closer to the truth. In general, I like to conclude each chapter on a cliffhanger of sorts. And also I make sure there's a new revelation in every chapter. So it just made sense for as Afrika gets closer and closer to the truth, the chapters would kind of mirror her journey in that way. I love what you've said about that fever dream quality you were
1: wanting to go for and you definitely got that and you talk about the meat cute but here's the thing is you planted there were so many red flags in between the meat cute and here's the thing I don't read a book's jacket copy before I read it for the podcast I like to go in completely cold I don't like being told what to expect or having anything that's going to ruin my reading experience and we have this meat cute and I'm like oh my god is this meant to be like Really romantic because this guy is kind of giving me creepy vibes. Why is he giving me creepy vibes? But yeah, he is kind of flirtatious and he is great with her. But what is it about him that's making me feel wildly uncomfortable? And so, for those of you who are trying to achieve that same kind of thing, get Advika and the Hollywood Wives. There's such an amazing balance of meet cute. And like, uh uh-oh, there's something not right happening here. And so read it to see. Ketano, will ask you some more questions later. For now, can we ask you to read your
0: query letter submission? rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
2: Sure. Dear Cece, I'm seeking representation for my 80,000 word upmarket novel, Couples Therapy. Think Lily King's Writers and Lovers meets Taffy brodesser Ackner's Fleischman is in Trouble. When middle-aged, middle-class, mixed-race couple, Naomi and Ryan, start couples therapy nine years into their marriage, Naomi is so busy advocating for their seven-year-old son with special needs, caring for her elderly parents, dealing with her insufferable mother-in-law, and fighting perimenopause symptoms, she thinks getting their marriage back on track will be a breeze, just another thing to knock off her to-do list. But she couldn't have foreseen what she would have soon discover about her husband. Or could she? Is he lying about how long she slept on the floor when she was pregnant, or is she misremembering? Is she criticizing him so much that he feels attacked, or is he manipulating her? Has she been fooling herself all along, or is she simply trying to survive? Follow Naomi as she navigates life as a woman of color in a society which she's always had to fight, where she's never belonged, and no matter what she says or how much she shouts, it seems no one is listening. I'm a second-generation, Caribbean, Canadian, mixed-race, Toronto-based writer who may or may not have been to Couples Therapy. Couples Therapy has been long listed for the 2023 Exeter Novel Prize for Unpublished Novels, and two chapter excerpts have been published, one in the Malahat Review and another in the Smart Set. My short stories have appeared in such journals as the Antigonish Review, Journal of Caribbean Literatures, and Macomre. This is my first novel. Thank you for your consideration, Christine Singh.
1: Wonderful, Kathana. Thank you. Okay, we're going to get Carly and Cece to weigh in on the query letter. Cece, would you like to kick us off? Absolutely. So this is clocking in at
3: 277 words, which is very great in terms of length. And also because I'm going to give you a note that will make this a little longer. So it does mean you have room. I really love the two comps you're using. Like they're such great books. So of course, this obviously makes me very excited. When it comes to the paragraph that essentially delivers the stakes, it's the one that starts with, but she couldn't have foreseen what she would soon discover about her husband. That paragraph is basically questions. Or could she? Is he lying? Is she misremembering? Is she criticizing? Is he manipulating her? One question is fine, but we don't need all these questions, especially when they are on the generic side. So for example, is he manipulating her? I'm not entirely sure what he would be manipulating her about because we didn't get to that specific plot point. And so we could be talking about any marriage. And I know we're not. I'm sure your pages are very specific. But the job of the query letter is to have enough specificity that this will not feel like an every marriage story, but rather a very specific marriage story that's going to, of course, resonate with everyone who either has been married or not. I guess what I'm saying is that I think that that specific paragraph needs to be more grounded what exactly did she discover? This probably happened so early on that it's fair for us to know. And what are the external plot points, not the internal one she's going through, that escalate the tension? Your interiority is probably super great. This is what I thought when I read this paragraph. But right now, it's time to focus on external plot points. And I really, really enjoyed the author paragraph too.
1: Thank you, Cece.
0: Okay, Carly? I agree with everything Cece had to say. Just to add something to the second paragraph, which is the when middle-aged, middle-class, mixed-race couple paragraph. So the last line is she thinks getting their marriage back on track will be a breeze, just another thing to knock off her to-do list. And I'm I'm kind of, I wrote, like, does she really think that? Like, I kind of find that really hard to believe that our that marriage is either taken such a backseat that she doesn't care or she doesn't kind of see what's going on and then we have the next paragraph switching to which we we all know this one kind of has to be rewritten reframed with statements not questions I don't know that just it just felt really disjointed to me because I you know my my notes were you know I really love the theme of this book but I have no idea what this book is about (laughs) the first paragraph is premise the second paragraph is pretty unclear in terms of what's happening and this last paragraph is very interesting but I have no idea what the plot is so I would just say let's just really focus on centering the plot because we think that it's probably very interesting and uh, we just want to see what you can come up with. Thank you, Carly. All right, Kithana, we're going to ask
1: you for an overview of what was in those opening pages and then your feedback for the author.
2: Sure. And I just want to say really quickly, as a person who has written a query letter, and when I was reading this query letter, I felt the writer holding back and not wanting to share specifics because she felt there would be spoilers. And one of the things I can say, the best thing you can do is be specific because that's more likely to catch the attention of an agent and make them want to read your opening pages. So I can't emphasize enough. If you feel like you're holding anything back that you think is too important, it's not put it in the query letter. There's a reason why you want the agent to keep reading. But that said, I will now move on to discussing the pages. So the very first line of this novel is Naomi, the main character, stating, I tell our therapist, I tend to shout. She then goes on to explain that this is her and Ryan's first time doing couples therapy in nine years of marriage, and she says she wants to go for the sake of their seven-year-old son, Noah, who has special needs, and she doesn't want him to have to deal with a divorce when he has so many other challenges. Their therapist, Tammy, asks Naomi why she shouts, and she says she speaks loudly no matter how she's feeling, whether she's annoyed, happy, mad, or sad. But Ryan says he feels attacked when Naomi shouts, and she explains again that she speaks loudly because she's naturally expressive and shares her feelings, unlike her husband, who she she calls a Gen X white man, and therefore she believes is quiet and unemotional. She also says she can't change the way she expresses herself because she is Caribbean and that is how she was raised. Naomi also says in this novel she she chose Tammy because she hoped that as a woman, she'd be more likely to see things from Naomi's point of view. But to her dismay, it's obvious that Tammy identifies more with Ryan when she jokes that they're both unemotional people because they're both wasps. But even worse, Tammy assumes that Naomi has emigrated to Canada, even though Naomi was actually born in Toronto, and her therapist tells her she needs to adapt to where she lives, aka when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So Naomi can't believe her therapist is saying this to her, And that is where the pages end
1: wonderful so wow it sounds like we set up for quite a bit of conflict here and we always say the more conflict the better interpersonal inner conflict conflict with society conflict with the world etc so kithana what was your take on the pages and do you have any suggestions for the author for them to elevate the
2: work sure so i also want to say off the bat that naomi has such a strong voice and it immediately leaps off the page It's just really voicey and conversational, and it makes you want to keep on reading. And I was actually thinking about this. I can't remember the last time I read something and felt a character's frustration so palpably. It's like she is simmering, but trying to keep it together. And so that I found very compelling. Throughout these opening pages, Naomi also makes these very acerbic observations of Tammy, the therapist. And they actually mirror her growing regret in choosing Tammy to be their counselor. She describes her straw-like blonde hair and her dirty pores. I just found that very effective to show not only Naomi's despair and realizing she chose the wrong therapist, but also just how observational she is. She just has a very keen eye. But overall, my biggest question coming away from these pages was, what was the breaking point that brought Naomi to therapy with her husband? As is explained in the query letter and even in these opening pages, they've been together for nine years. And part of the reason they're seeking couples therapy is that she doesn't want to get divorced for the sake of their son. But still, there has to be some sort of incident that was so significant that drove them to try to see a therapist. Tammy, the therapist, even says she asked them for an incident Versus hypotheticals. And as readers, I think we need specifics too. Of course, with a novel called Couples Therapy, Naomi's marriage is a big part of this novel. And I don't think it's enough to pique her interest in their marriage just to say they have different styles of expressing themselves because they come from different backgrounds. And one of the best things about Naomi is that she has such a sharp eye for detail and the way she observes Tammy is so interesting and funny. But we get nothing of that in terms of her talking about or thinking about Ryan. He honestly comes off as a blank in these pages. He doesn't speak very much. And we just don't see him the way we see Naomi. In fact, I came away from these opening pages thinking, I actually know more about Tammy, the therapist, than who Ryan is. And to be invested in the story, we just need to see Ryan. And since Naomi has such a observant eye and sharp commentary, I just wanted to see, what was Ryan doing in therapy? Was he fidgeting? Were they making eye contact? Did he dress up for this therapy session? Did he dress down? I think that would go a long way with seeing Brian through Naomi's eyes and also giving us insight into their marriage. The only other thing I would suggest is at the beginning of these pages, Naomi essentially tells us exactly what is happening. She says, me and my husband are in couples therapy and we're going for the sake of my son. And she does that in a very interesting way, but it's a little info dumpy. And I think when you're, you want readers to become immersed in your world from the opening chapter, you want to set a scene and kind of put them in the pages rather than being told what was about to happen. So I would just reframe those first few paragraphs and put that in the scene with the therapist. But overall, I just I think there's something really strong here. I think Naomi has a great voice, but we just need more specifics and more details and just know what is at stake in terms of this the novel, in terms of their marriage.
1: I love that, Kathana. Thank you. Yeah. and, And also at this point in the marriage, I feel like people are keeping score, right? There's that saying, do not keep score if you want to keep love. But I feel like a couple at this point, they're keeping score and these very specifics about this one did this and then this one did this and this one did that. And we do say stay away from a lot of backstory in the opening pages, but it's also fine for her to think about the last thing he did that really pissed her off and that maybe got them into therapy or whatever. So, and, and that can just be done in a line or two or even in, in a paragraph. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add there? I was going to suggest that the writer here read The Spare Room
3: by Andrea Bartz because even though it doesn't begin with a person in therapy, she is alone with her thoughts on a train and she's thinking about a fight she had with her partner, her fiance. And she doesn't tell us exactly what happened. She does think about it with specifics, sharp visuals that are very, very curiosity inducing. And she gives us lots of emotion. So really, she frames it as a curiosity seed. So I would love to be in the scene, you know, with her thinking about the fight that got them there with these really great sharp specifics in a way that really just ups the curiosity. Because to Carthana's point, you know, you're not an explainer. As a storyteller, you're not an explainer. You're a seducer. And honestly, doesn't that sound way more cool? Like who wants to be an explainer? Nobody. Everybody wants to be a seducer. So seduce us, you know? And I think that part of why the seduction isn't coming across is because I suspect this writer has what I have, which is overthinking disease. I counted, and I'm not doing this to be be a bully, I promise. First paragraph, you use the word therapist three times, honest three times, shout three times. I'm not counting variations like therapy or shouting. Again, not pointing this out to be a jerk. Pointing this out because you probably just write and write and write and you're trying to get all the information out there. That's fine. As long as you take it past and then you cut it back. You know, you could have said that first paragraph in probably one line. I mean, it would have been way more curiosity inducing because I know she didn't shout at her therapist. And even if I don't know, I'll figure it out later in dialogue. So you can really just rein it back in and not as a way to withhold
1: for aggravation's sake, but as a way to seduce the reader. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right. So we are now going to go to Cece's query letter. Will you read that for us,
3: please? Absolutely, and before I do, because this episode is airing on July 20th, just a reminder that today, tonight, is the night of my writing relationships webinar, so if you are listening to this on the day of release, you can still sign up, go to the links in my bio to see more. Okay, so let's do this. Dear Cece, as a devoted shithead, I am struck again and again by your sharp insights into books as well as people. I appreciate your interest in family stories, and I try hard to capture the complex tangle of identity and loyalty within families of origin and of choice. In my novel, The Honey Markets, an 85,000-word work of adult fantasy, the standalone novel has serious potential and will appeal to fans of The Unspoken by A.K. Larkwood and The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. Brett Lee was supposed to protect her little brothers. But she did nothing as they fell into the stolen magic trade, known as the honey markets. Now she sees them only in secret, unwilling to risk her place in the wealthy court that taught her to use the mountain's magic. Her guilt and concern are swallowed by shock when thieves start draining her court's hidden magic wells. In a land where wealth is measured in liquid magic, Bretley must stop the thefts or sink into brutal poverty. Desperate to track down the thieves and save her court, she asks her youngest brother to bring her into the honey markets. Her brother, a shrewd trader of a rival court, arrives on the condition that Bretley used stolen magic to enchant items for him to sell. This cover works too well, upending the criminal netherworld, even as Bretley chases clues from squalid caves to splendid ballrooms through treachery and murder and buried history. But as she pieces together a plot to destroy her court, she begins to suspect the very brother who was helping her. Before the wells empty, Brettley will have to choose between the court that saved her and the brother she was supposed to protect. I am a former technology project manager and now spend my days expanding the collection of nature treasures in my trunk together with my two young children. With this submission, I include the manuscript's first five pages. Please let me know if you would like to read more.
1: Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Miriam. Thank you, Cece. Before we ask you for the word count and your take on that, Carly, is it time for your reveal yet in terms of which book you offered representation on?
0: I will never, I will never tell unless I meet you at a conference and you buy me a drink. (laughs) Okay, so everybody now
1: look to see when Carly's going to be at a conference and make sure you meet her at the bar. Okay, Cece, so what was the word count there and what was your take on that?
3: 347 words, great length. As a small note, I'd write the titles for the comps in all caps on the first paragraph. It helps with readability. And also thank you so much for these very lovely compliments. Okay, plot paragraphs, because let's face it, that's what I really care about. It's all great like so specific, so clear, you know, not focused too much on the world building, which I sometimes see in in query letters for fantasy, but rather on the relationships. I do have one, one note though, that I think is not quite as great as the rest of this. The last line, before the well is empty, Brettley will have to choose between the court that saved her and the brothers she was supposed to protect. That's the major dramatic question, which is where your query letter is supposed to end. Amazing. But that's the same question she had in the beginning. You know, she had to either choose the court or her brothers. And so we we didn't see a change. Storytelling is about change. And so understanding what's different about the second time around, making, making it different if you haven't, is really, really important. Because otherwise I'm being promised a story where the central axis of the protagonist's quest is not going to move. And that doesn't sound as compelling as if it did move. A general question I have is why are there two brothers? Because the plot points only focus on one. And so I'm pointing this out because maybe that's, where the mystery of the change and the major dramatic question lies. Maybe you have to tell us about the second brother. I don't know. Maybe you don't need two brothers. Maybe you can just cut back to one. But I was
1: I was confused about that. So that's something I'd work on too. But overall, really great job. Thank you, Cece. Okay. Can you give us an indication of what was in the opening pages and then your take on them? So our
3: protagonist is meeting with her brother at a location that's deemed to be safe because it's not super crowded and because their eyes won't out them. They have to pretend like they don't know each other. And she tells him that their brother is going to be freed and he's not reacting with the joy that she had hoped he would. They're thinking back to their childhood where they would wait together, the three of them, but her brother doesn't really remember that. And she notices him using language that's really different. She calls them cave words, which isn't like him. And then he tells her that actually the brother that's going to be released is going to be released today. He knows this because he used to be a guard, so he knows the schedule. A woman walks by. They pretend like they're not talking to each other, and but she still feels safe because they're being very careful. And then the woman leaves. And after that, they go back to interacting in a safe way. And then Joth, Joth is the brother who is going to be released, appears. And then the pages end. Okay. So what did you think of them? I want to start by saying that the first line is really great. They met as they always did in secret. Short, curiosity-inducing, makes me want to read more. Who is they? Why does it have to be in secret? You know, they're not, the author is not spending any time explaining, which is really, really important in my opinion when it comes to first lines. So excellent job there. I thought that there were a few things that I wasn't quite clear on. So for example, did she think her brother didn't know that the other brother was going to be released? Did she have anything to do with the release? How fresh was this information? Also, when he tells her it's going to be today, that sounds super coincidental. Right? Like why would they meet on the day that happens to be the day of the release? Does the coincidence make her suspicious in any way? If so that would up the tension. It I just it felt like there was information being exchanged but the interiority wasn't quite matching and an anticipation of what the other person's agenda would be with any specificity. And I really wanted that. Really wanted to have more active goals too. Like, why is she saying this to him? And other than she wants them to be friends again, because that's really sweet and adorable. But, you know, plot. We want the juicy plot. Could she be there to convince him of something? Because I like that. Or maybe, maybe she would want to see him alone first so that they could agree on something when the brother arrives. I like that too. Like that kind of strategizing, that kind of scheming. But before I go into my one of my brainstorming tangents, because that's not my place, I know that. I guess I'm pointing out all these questions to say, I'm not sure we're starting in the right place. It's not that it's a bad place to start, but either you really flesh out her interiority in a way that shows her agency, shows her protagonism, or I think maybe, maybe the brother is already out, you know, or maybe she's finding out the news because that way she can be surprised. She isn't really surprised in any moment here. Even when the woman interrupts them, the woman that could get them like, in trouble, in serious trouble with the law. She's safe. She's safe all the time. Her interiority is like, it's okay. We're being safe in no moment. And I kept expecting disruption. I kept expecting, oh, she thinks she's safe, but actually something bad's going to happen. But no. And then the brother appears, which is, you know, nice because obviously she's going to get to see her brother again. But I guess what I'm saying is we need more tension and tension's really important. And if Carly sings the timestamp song again, I'll sing a tension song. I promise. Okay,
1: so something to look forward to next time. I'll make sure these two practice. I will play the drums in the background because no one wants to hear me sing. Right, before we end today's episode, Kathana, a question from something you said earlier. So for our listeners, remember, Kathana is the author of Advika and the Hollywood Wives. And she said earlier that she started with the meet-cute and at some point was like, oh, hell, I'm busy writing a thriller. So this is like a bit of a, a genre blend. Now, when I write a novel, I have no idea what the hell genre I'm writing in. I never think about genre when I begin, which is why I really feel for authors on the show who have to position their novels in terms of their query letters and say, it's a this or it's a that. So in terms of the, the genre blend, Kithana, at, at what point did you realize that? And was it ever a problem for your publisher? Or were they like, this is great, we can kind of market it as a romance and as a thriller? Or how
2: did they mark? That's a really good question. I think I realized it when Avika had her first huge realization about Julian and who really is in terms of how he treated his first ex-wife. And the fact that she was so like, she couldn't wait to see what would happen next in terms of what else she'll find out. And I was like, oh, I think I'm writing a thriller in the sense that she's now on a journey for information. She's actually kind of almost investigating him. And that was when I realized that was happening. In terms of how we market it and the promotion, I think it's more like an up... We've been definitely saying it's more upmarket book club fiction, but it's been really interesting to see the reviews that call it part romance and part thriller. So I feel like Even reviewers have different ideas of what this book is, which I think has been actually helpful. The best thing I've ever heard when people describe this book is they call it a page turner. And as authors, we don't want anything more than that. So I think it actually kind of worked out and also taught me if I do want to write like a a standard thriller one day, maybe I can actually do it.
1: I love that. There should be a whole genre that's just like, it's a page turner, man. That's what it is. It's a page turner. Right. So, Kirthana, thank you so much for joining us. We loved having you on the show and we hope to have you back with the next book for Carly and Cece. As always, thank you so much for your insights. For our Kofi supporters, you will be able to see Kirthana's notes as well as Carly and Cece's notes in terms of the critique and the opening pages. So for those of you who support us on the platform, head over there so you can see the written notes. We look forward to seeing you next week. Bye everyone. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.